I'm going to be in Psalm 34, and so if you want to look on your uh, phone or iPad or Bible, whatever you have, you'll be able to follow along with me on that this morning. We've been going through the summer of Psalms as a church, and we're winding up with that here in August. And so this morning, uh, again, I will be in Psalm 34. One of the things I appreciate about the Psalms is it gives us a real-life picture of real-life people who go through troubles and trials and difficulties in life. So when you look and uh, read about the Psalms, uh, David wrote most of them. And sometimes I think we get a picture in our mind about David as being this spiritual giant, which God speaks a, a lot about David, but he went through a lot of difficult times, and he wasn't always so faithful. And so I like to read the Psalms to be reminded and encouraged that I'm going to face trials and difficulties. I won't always act or react appropriately in my faith. Because I can read David, who does that, but yet he repents and comes back, and God forgives him. And so he gives us this wonderful picture about how we go through life, understanding that we don't always make the right choices, we don't always do the right things, but God is faithful when we turn back and repent and ask for his forgiveness. You know, one of the things that I'm a little concerned about in our culture is um, people begin to think that if you're a Christian, your life's going to be free of troubles and challenges. You know, once you place your faith in Christ, well, hey, it's going to be all peaches and cream and it's nice and you know you have lots of money and you're going to get the good house and the good job and you know God's just going to bless you. That's not the case. Matter of fact, you read the pages of scripture, those folks who followed God went through some tough times. So don't be deceived this morning to think that, hey, the Christian life is easy. It's just one big blessing in terms of the way you think life will turn out. Matter of fact, we're going to face lots of trials and struggles. And so at our church here at Substance, we like to take everything back to the gospel and say, if you understand the gospel, if you process life through the gospel, you will see that we live in a fallen world that brings lots of troubles. But we also believe that God will take us through those trials, those troubles also transform our life to becoming more like him. And so there's always good that comes from our troubles. So this morning, I want to probe a question with you as we think about Psalm 34. And my question would be to you is, what is your default system of dealing with life? What's your default system of dealing with life? You know, when you navigate through life and troubles or trials come in, or maybe even in the good times, what do you trust? What do you place your faith in? Is it you and your ability to handle any situation? Is it your money? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it how wise you think you are to make these decisions in life and you just kind of trust in yourself? I've noticed over the years that people who go through the trials of life generally display what they most trust life with and in. Because I think it's the trials of life that it really expose 
the depth of our faith. So this morning, I would like to say that we got to be careful not to compartmentalize our faith. And here's what I mean by that. You know, you come to church on Sunday, and you give God an hour or two. You might pray before your meals. You might go to a community group even every once in a while, and that's your spiritual life. And the rest of the week is your life. I want to call that app faith. App faith. Everybody has a phone or an iPad probably, or have seen one, right? Okay, if you look on your phone, it's got a series of apps or on your computer or your iPad. And when you need something, you hit the app. If I want to know what the weather forecast for the day is going to be, I hit the app, I find out, I close it, I'm done with it. I'm not so sure that a lot of people live life with kind of God being an app in their life. You know when you need him, you kind of hit the button, you call up God and you ask him what you want to ask him, you pray to him, possibly, or you ask him to solve a problem in your life, you close it, now you go on. It's easy to do. But that's not the kind of faith that helps us understand that God is a trustworthy God. That's not the kind of faith in life that God desires for you and I. Now, I'm not a real technical guy, so I might get this uh, a little skewed, but it seems to me that God wants to be our operating system and not our app. Right? Where, where God controls everything, he manages everything, and he runs everything. It means that you start with God, and you end with God, and everything in life you filter through the passions and priorities of Christ so that he is driving and running your life. Did it make sense? <laughs> so we have to be careful that we don't allow God to become some kind of an app, a tap on, tag on in our life. You see, an app faith begins with me and not God. An app faith says that I want something from God and at my good pleasure, I'll now call to God in hopes that he gives me what I want. But an operating system of faith says that God is where I begin and God is the one I seek to obey and live for. And so my question to begin with is, do you see God as more of an app in your life or an operating system? Is your faith based more on calling to God when you need him or walking daily with God in obedience? When we treat God as more of an app, we're really saying that we want the benefits of God more than we want God, Right? I want you to take care of this for me, and then I don't really want anything to do with you until I have another problem in my life. Might it be said that God is an app in your life more than an operating system this morning? See, how you answer that reveals a lot about your faith. So this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at David's life 
and look at some things that he did to make sure that God was at the center and it was God that controlled and led him through life. And so the real question will be, how do you move from an app faith to an operating system, if that's where you are this morning? And so Psalm 34, for me, is a good example of that. Matter of fact, we'll read it here in a moment, but in Psalm 34, 11, David says this. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I think that's an important verse in this whole psalm because it seems to me that David has come to the place of understanding he needed to kind of realign himself with God, that he had gotten skewed, he had gotten off of track, and so now he's going to teach others how he got himself squared away. Something that I'll refer to several times this morning, that God wants us to realize we're completely dependent on his gracious, undeserved mercy in our life, in every situation we face, and that we can trust his grace and mercy alone because of who he is. Let me say it again. God wants us to realize we are completely dependent upon his gracious, undeserved mercy in our life. And in every situation we face, we can trust his grace and mercy because of who God is. So before we read Psalm 34, I need to give you some background. Psalm 34 is born out of David's real-life experience in 1 Samuel chapter 21. One of the things that uh, is good to be reminded of this morning was we read the Psalms or any other portion of Scripture, you got to get the right context. And so here's what's going on in David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is a time when David's on the run from King Saul. King Saul was pursuing him and wanted to kill him because David had been called to be the new king. And Saul was jealous. And so David's a fugitive in life. And so he flees because Saul is in hot pursuit after him to a place called Nob, where there's a tabernacle and a priest. And so David shows up at Nob and speaks to the priest and begins to tell him some lies. He tells him that he's there because King Saul has sent him and his men on a special mission. And he says, I need food and weapons. Well, that's kind of strange, for one. You'd think the priest would say, you're on a special mission and you don't have food or weapons. That's probably another sermon. Uh, the priest gave him and his men the consecrated bread from the tabernacle. And this was bread that was in the Holy of Holies, or it was in the holy place, excuse me. Every day it was replaced. The priests alone could eat that bread, but the priest decided he would give David this bread to his men so they would have food. Lies a second time now and says, I also need some weapons. And the priest says, the only weapon I have is Goliath's sword. Now you remember way back in David's life, when he was a young boy, he had killed the mightiest warrior of the Philistines, Goliath. 
And the sword of Goliath, which had to be really big because the priest said there's none like it, is in the back of the tabernacle, and so he gives it to David as a weapon. There's a spy, or if you will, somebody that was traveling that was part of King Saul's army and uh, decides he's going to run and tell Saul David is at Nob. And so now David finds out Saul's hot on his heels again, and so he panics and he runs. And check this out. He runs into Philistine territory to a place called Gath. And he not only runs into the Philistine territory, the enemy territory of Gath, he goes to Goliath's hometown. I mean, he's scared, right? You got Goliath's sword, and you go to Goliath's hometown. Like, nobody's going to notice, right? And while he's there, the people obviously recognize him. And so David now again reacts out of fear and acts like he's a madman. Like there's something wrong with him. So he doesn't get killed. And so in doing that, the king of the Philistines says, get him out of here. I don't need any more madmen in my kingdom. I don't need this issue. And so David takes off. I mean, look at what just happened. I, I, I mean... Can you imagine a young boy who killed the mightiest warrior in battle where the whole army of Israel trembled, coming to the place as a young man now, fearing for his own life and not trusting the Lord? You ever been there? We do it. We do it. Fear's always the enemy of faith. Fear always causes us to either hold fast to the things we believe in and trust in or take matters into our own hands. David chose to take matters into his own hands. He chose not to trust in God's past faithfulness. So that's the background of this psalm, of this psalm this morning. I chose this psalm this morning because it's one of the most uh, meaningful psalms I've ever read in my own personal life. And here's what I mean. I read this psalm for the first time that I remember back in the time of my life when I was going through the most difficult, scariest thing I'd ever faced. That time became a marking point for me and my family in our faith journey, though. It brought me face to face with the fact that I had made God more of an app than an operating system in my life. It was a marking point on our faith journey. And let me explain, if you will, before we read the text. In 1995, life was going along pretty nice. I'd just switched jobs, was making good money, taking classes in seminary. It's the end of the school year, and Kim and the kids are ready to wrap it up. We got a nice vacation planned. All the good stuff, right? But that would come quickly to an end. You see, actually, our daughter had an infection in her eye. At least that's what we thought. And within two weeks, the infection didn't go away and become worse. 
to the point that one evening a doctor had sent us to Mansfield for a CAT scan only to schedule an appointment the next morning with the specialist in Cleveland to where we showed up at 10 o'clock to have the specialist then say at 1 o'clock we're doing surgery and they removed the cherry-sized tumor from her eye and we were pretty sure it was malignant cancer. Life came to a screeching halt. Folks, there's no way to prepare for this. There's no way that we expected it, no way to process it at first. And we came face to face with, I think, most parents' biggest nightmare, and that is, is your child going to die? How much longer will you have her in your life? But this became the time we would recognize God wants us to realize we're completely dependent on God's gracious, undeserved mercy in our life, in every situation we face, and that we can trust his grace and mercy alone because of who God is, to his glory. And it was the next morning after her surgery that I sat down and opened my Bible, just completely distraught that I discovered Psalm 34. And I studied the text, but it landed on Psalm 34, 4 in particular, and here's what it says. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. It's a result of this psalm and that verse in my own life as well as our families. You'll hear me say things like this. What are you willing to trust God with? Is this situation too big for God to handle in your life? And another one, if God's in control, nothing is ever out of control. You see, I'd have never understood that if I wouldn't have went through this difficult time, probably, and been forced to the place to ask myself those difficult questions. So if you've got your Bible, finally, you say, we'll get to Psalm 34. Again, remembering the background in David's life as he writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. <clears throat> the young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life? and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his eyes toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How in the world did David get to that place after running and acting the way he did? Something happened that he had to realign himself, right? Something happened that he had to say, whoa, I need to get back on track. And so I want to notice three things, but... Take a moment with me and notice something first. Psalm 34 over and over gives us some great attributes of God. Here are some of them, and we see this one throughout that whole passage. We see God who is over all things. In other words, he is sovereign. No person, no thing can ever overpower God. He alone is in control. If there was no other attribute you learned in this psalm, that would be enough for you to say God is trustworthy. Think for a moment how foolish it is when we think we can manipulate God or use him as an app, right? God is in control. And then verses 17 and 18, we see the God who is near. David writes about the nearness of God, that God is not separated from his people. But with them, he sees and hears them when they call to him. He's not a God who is far off. He lives with us and is close. Verses 4, 6, and 17, we see a God who responds when people call to him. Did you know that when you pray, God always answers your prayer? Listen, every time you pray, God answers your prayer. That doesn't mean he answers it the way you want him to, but he always is faithful to answer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's not quite yet. But he always answers. Verses 18 through 22, we see a God who saves. We can trust in God's ability to keep and save us. Verses 10, 15, and 22, we see the attributes of God that he is merciful, gracious, kind, and loving. In spite of the times David sins against God, the times he disregards God, the times he treats God very lightly, God is merciful, not giving David or us what we deserve. And then verses 21 and 22, we see the God who is just. He treats everyone the same. No one is judged differently. All will stand before God one day and We were judged by God's character and his standards. So back to 34 and the three things that I see in David's life as he writes that I think are important for us to learn and to maintain if we're going to make sure God doesn't become an app in our life but is our operating system. Here's the first one. I see it in verses 1 through 5. We need to maintain a passionate relationship with God. Maintain a passionate relationship with God. 
Verses 1 through 5 reveal a heart that is passionate for God when we look at David's life and the way he writes. That's different from wanting things from God. David wants God himself. This verse testifies to the love David has for God and the time that he spends with God. I notice the hunger in David's heart as he gives praise and testimony. Verse 1, he says, I will bless him at all times. Not a one hour, one day a week kind of experience. I will praise him continually with my mouth. Another, speak highly because he thinks of him continually because of his love for God. Verse 2, he says, my soul boasts of the Lord. He's bragging about the goodness of God. He's overtly speaking of his confidence and trust in God, and he wants the world, those around him, to know it. It's almost like David can't wait to tell somebody about God. Numbers 3, magnify the Lord and exalt his name. He has recognized the bigness of God and his smallness. He desires now to bring honor to God because of this passion and love he has for God. And then verse 5 and 6, he cried out to the Lord and God had graciously lifted his head and his spirit. David understood that he is completely dependent upon God's undeserved mercy in his life and in every situation he faces. David's modeled, if you will, in this first point alone. He's modeled for us how to maintain a passionate love for God. See, moving from God, being an app in your life, is going to require you to passionately pursue him. You have to have a desire to spend time with God. And the more time you spend with God, the better you know him and the more you're going to love him. But folks, one hour or 30 seconds a day just ain't going to cut it. How much do you desire God? Do you long to be with him more than longing for him to give you something? You know, I'll be honest with you, for me and Ashley's cancer, I had to confess that I wanted God a healer more than I wanted God. But I need God more than I needed that. I'm fearful that too many churches today connect people to church more than they connect people to Christ. And when I'm connected to church, then God probably becomes more of an app than an operating system. You'll never gain intimacy with God and learn his trustworthiness with an app faith. You'll never allow God, or God will never allow you to make him an app and an add-on in your life. So how's your passion this morning? Second thing that I think we can learn from this text is we need to remember God's presence and past faithfulness. I see that in verses 7 through 11. Remember God's past presence and his faithfulness. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around the righteous. I think David needed to remember that God is always present and with him. Do you, do you catch that? There's never a time in your life or my life that God is not present on this earth. Never. 
I mean, one of the biggest mind-blowing things about God is how can he be in all places at all times, but he is. That's God. Verse 7 then says that he delivers them. David's confident and certain that God's faithfulness is sufficient in his life. Verse 6, David said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him. I mean, in times past, David had called, and now he's reminded of the faithfulness of God. The battle of trusting God completely sometimes is moment by moment in our life. The truth is, we're in a spiritual battle, not only with our sinful hearts, but in the world we live in. See, Satan would desire for you to question God and wonder if he is trustworthy. He desires for you to question whether God is completely trustworthy with every single area of your life. And so David writes in verse 8, hey, taste and see. Taste and see. David's reminded of the past satisfaction and trustworthiness of God. Taste and see is the excuse me, is the challenge. Uh, Again, for those who have substituted church for Christ, you've probably never really tasted. I mean, there's nothing that satisfied as Christ said, hey, I'm the bread of life, and I'm the living water, and you'll never hunger or thirst again when you come to me. That's amazing. Taste and see, the great invitation. Taste and see. Well, how does God, through his past faithfulness and his presence, encourage us? Think of the story of David. Maybe David stood back and said, wow, I showed up at Nob and the priest gave me bread to eat. I can trust God. I showed up at Nob and I got Goliath's sword. I remember the time when I was a young boy and I was bold and courageous to step before the giant Goliath and say, you won't talk like that about my God. I'm going to take you out. And I think in those times like that, God reminds us of his faithfulness. He does that through his word over and over again in your scriptures through the Holy Spirit that lives in us and through his people. One of the things that encourages me weekly, and if you're not in a community group, let me give you the plug to say you need to be in a community group. You need to be plugged into people's lives. Man, you'll be encouraged by your faith because you're going to hear story after story after story of God's presence and faithfulness in his families, his children's lives. Third, and the final point, the thing we need to do to make sure that God doesn't become an app, but is our operating system, is I think you've got to preach the gospel to yourself regularly. And I see that in verses 18 through 22. When we see God as more of an app, we look for our problems to be solved, our fears to be relieved, our faith and to be strengthened because God performs some kind of duty in the way we think he should. But the wording in the text in verses 21 and 22 
point to the place that uh, it's the gospel and it's an inward thing that we need more than anything. Verse 21, those who hate righteousness will not be justified. They're left guilty before God. In verse 22, those who have been redeemed are justified and declared not guilty before God. You see, God wants us to realize we're completely dependent on God's gracious, undeserved mercy in our life, in every situation we face, and that we can trust his grace and mercy alone because of who he is. You know what David delivered or needed deliverance from? His broken relationship with God. You know what we need delivered from? Not the trials and the difficulties of life. That's not a big deal for God to lead you through or remove, by the way. But I need my relationship with God restored. And I need a gospel filter in life to make sense of why I go through these times. See, I wanted Ashley's cancer to be healed. And I would have gladly taken it if I could have. But the truth is, the fight she faced, the chemotherapy and radiation and all those things needed to be put in a right perspective so we could understand how to walk through life. And so we tried to develop this process in life where we want to filter everything through a gospel filter. And here's what I mean. Because the gospel says God created us to have a relationship with him, but our sin has separated us. And so we need redeemed and restored, and that's only done through Christ. And when that happens, we're on the path of being restored the rest of our life to become more like him. We came to the place when we filtered everything through the gospel grid to understand that, you know, God loved her more than we ever could. He loved her completely. And the healing she needed was a healing with her relationship with God. We were blessed at a younger age. She had asked Christ to forgive her sins, and she had committed herself to follow. And the question of why she got cancer, we could never, ever answer. But the question of how she got cancer, we could. It's because of the sinful, broken world we live in that disease and difficulties are going to come into our life. We could have peace knowing that if God chose to heal her, we would have who knows how many more years. But if not, she would be in heaven with Christ and it would just be a reunion for us one day. Because of the gospel, we knew the love of God for us and her in Jesus. See, don't get me wrong, I love my family, and I pray these situations don't come. But you know what? When they come, and they do, not the only trial we have ever faced, knowing the trustworthiness of God and practicing these things points me back to God and not making God an app in my faith. And so, Psalm 34, 4 for me, I sought the Lord, he answered me, and he delivered me from my fears. I sought the Lord. I've learned to walk closely with God, whom I love, who is faithful. Well, I get off track like David. Don't get me wrong. But, but I desire to have a relationship with God more than the benefits I think I need him to provide me. He answered me. 
by his presence and past reminders of his faithfulness, sometimes by removing the trial, but most often by not removing the trial, but walking me through them. And he delivered me from all of my fears. See, I desire to live life now with an eternal perspective that is gospel-centered. When God's at the center, when he's my operating system, I'm able to process life properly. I know he walks through the trials with me. So let me ask you a couple questions, and then we're going to pray. Can you say that you live and believe God as a trustworthy God in your life? Do you function more like God being an app that you call to him just when you want him on your terms? Or is he your operating system? Are you completely dependent on God's gracious, undeserved mercy in your life, in every situation that you face? And is his grace and mercy alone sufficient for you? If not, it can be. If you got off track, you can get back on track. I think we see David's heart getting back on track in verse 11. Come, O oh dear children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word and your instruction to us. Thank you this morning that as you have taught us and as you have led us into a study of your word, we are able to see, even in the people of our scriptures like David, who you said was a man after your own heart, we can observe times when he faltered, when he failed, when he did not react or act the way he should, but he would turn his heart back to you in repentance. I pray this morning for those that are here that would say, Man, I, I'm just honest, and I function with you being more of an app. I just want you when I want you, and they're wrestling with what that means. I pray for them that they would honestly seek you and taste and see your goodness and trust in you. For those this morning that would say, man, I think I've slid into maybe too much of a pattern of making you an app, but you really are my operating system, and so uh, help me, Lord. Would you, as they repent and cry out to you, may you just hear their, their prayer and give them the assurance that they need. And Lord, maybe there's some this morning who are just trying to make sense of all of this. Just trying to make sense of all of this. I would pray, oh God, that you would continue to reveal yourself to them and their need for Christ and salvation. And understand that, yeah, life's going to present challenges and trials, but they need not ever walk through it alone because you promise to walk beside your children. So thank you this morning for these promises, revealing yourself to us, and for the gospel that saves us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.